find some time to share the talk with you today. I want to talk to you. Uh, the title of my message is Why Darfur Matters. I want to talk to you about something that um, you may have heard a little bit about here and there over the last couple of years. But it's something that is huge in my heart. And I've been waiting for the right time, and, and it always seemed that because of circumstances or, or just because of the schedule of the church or whatever might be, sometimes we had missionaries come at kind of unexpected time that they were in town at just a unique time of the year, and so we had to rearrange what we had planned. That I've delayed this enough, but this is really big on my heart. And I want to talk to you, first of all, about the year 1994. 1994, can you remember what you were doing in 1994? I was in college, and that particular summer, the summer of 1994, I came home. I'd, I went. I grew up in Dallas, and I went to school in Kansas City. And so I remember coming home that summer, and that summer was a great uh, season to reunite with some of my high school friends, and, and we had a lot of fun that year. I went to a lot of Texas Ranger baseball games. Um, I went to South Padre Island for a week. Enjoyed a week on the beach. Went to uh, Monterey, Mexico on a mission trip, and that really affected my life in a positive way. And remember being in Monterey, Mexico. It was just a normal summer, a normal summer for a collegiate experience. Um, but I didn't realize until the last couple of years that there was something else going, going on in 1994. During that just normal summer of my life, what was happening was one of the worst or the worst genocide that's ever happened in human history in Rwanda. And when I talk to you today about why Darfur matters, I want to start not in Darfur. I want to start in the country of Rwanda in 1994 because on April 6 of 1994, there was an assassination that led to unrest. And within a 100 days, and this is a remarkable Remarkable fact. Within a hundred days, 800,000 people were exterminated or killed in Rwanda. You go ahead and put that slide up there. 800,000 lives exterminated in just a hundred days. You know what really bothers me about that? Is that during that time, I'm sure there were certain news reports, and I'm sure there were, there were certain things you could find. But in my young mind, my life was just going on without any reference to this at all. In fact, in reflecting of what was going on during that time, the biggest thing that occupied our attention in the media was O.J. Simpson and his trial. That consumed everything. And yet... On the other side of the planet, while I was having this normal collegiate experience, experiences, going to baseball games, going to the beach, hanging out with my friends, 800,000 people, and some think up to a million, were killed. This rate of death was three times faster than the Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s. Unbelievable. The reason we want to start, why Darfur matters, why we want to start in Rwanda, because when we begin to think of the gravity of what happened and what happened in our lifetime and what happened in our generation, the appropriate response is to say that's not going to happen again. That's why a book and a book by, by which I, uh, a lot of my information came from is called Not on Our Watch. 
not on our watch. It's a very well-renowned uh, book about this subject. And the, even the title of that book grabbed my attention when I saw it. Not on our watch. This happened once before in Rwanda, but it cannot happen again on our watch. Let me tell you a little bit about what genocide is. Genocide is a word that's thrown around, and in fact, the United Nations, they argue about whether or not Darfur is a genocide. There really is no legitimate argument about that. It is obvious that it is, but for political reasons, the word genocide is argued over. Do we label this a genocide or not? But here's the definition of a genocide. A genocide is the deliberate and systematic extermination of a national, racial, political, or cultural group. It is exterminating people. It happened also in the early 90s in Bosnia, and the attention of the world was much more uh, was, was much greater on, on Bosnia than it was on what happened in Rwanda. The reason that Darfur matters, the reason Darfur matters is because Darfur has been called Rwanda in slow motion. Rwanda in slow motion. You know, Rwanda happened in 100 days, 800,000 people. But statistics in 2007, I'm sure these have increased by then in three and a half years in Darfur, 400,000 people have been killed. Now let's think about this for a second. We, we, we ache and we appropriately mourn over what happened in New York City on September 11, 2001, and that's appropriate where two to 3,000 people died. But we're talking about 400,000, 400,000 in three and a half years. And yet... We hear so little about it. You know, we're fascinated in the media. You know, we're following Britney Spears and and Paris Hilton and, uh, you know, assaulting our politicians' character of things they did 20 and 30 years ago. In the media, in their sensationalism, they are not exposing us to things that are happening during our time under, as the book says, our watch and our generation. And so that's why this message is important to me today. You know, I realize there's a lot of needs in this room today. I realize that a lot of you are dealing with stuff, and, and the easy thing would say, you know, I really don't want to go to a church service today and hear about people dying on the other side of the world. I understand that, but I'm sorry. I have to share this with you today. I have to let you know what's going on. I have to because this is our time. This is our generation. This is our planet. We live in 2008 for a reason. Let me tell you a little bit about the country of Sudan. I want you to go ahead and show that map up there. A lot of times, uh, there, Sudan is located right below Egypt. You see it there in red. It's a massive country. It'd be like taking the United States and everything east of the Mississippi River. It's this huge country with all kinds of ethnic groups and all kinds of people. There's 41 million people in Sudan. That's a lot, a lot of people. If you look at a country like Ireland that has 5 million people, and a lot of the European countries that are rich in culture, they, they don't have near as many people as Sudan. It has 41 million people. America, we have 300 million people, but that still is a significant, large, large country. You see there at the at your top right there that the uh, map shows the, the the part. I know that's not a or we need a new light bulb by the way for this projector. Uh, but you see there that in that country of Sudan, the far western part is the no, part known as Darfur. Darfur has 41 million people and it's run by an Islamic government. They run through Islamic rule. 
And the interesting thing about this country is this country is comprised of about roughly half people who are considered African are black people and then half who are considered Arab people. And they've just kind of through the old British colonial ways have just just kind of thrown into these geographical boundaries. And so, as you know, there's all kinds of conflict and there's all types of issues that can happen. I want to share with you the names of three tribes, three tribes. The first tribe is the fur tribe. Darfur, Darfur means the home of the fur. That's where that region is. These other two, just to be honest with you, I tried to find the pronunciations of them and I couldn't. So I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna try to fake my way through the pronunciations of these names. But they're names worth knowing. There's names worth writing down because these are the three tribes that are systematically being eliminated. That if the government of Sudan, if the people who are, are causing raids, they want to exterminate these particular tribes, and have them either die or leave the land. And we need to recognize those names today. We need to know what those names are. I also want to tell you there's a name of a group of people called the Janjaweed. They are not really good people at all. They're these, the Janjaweed are these bandit-type people. They want to eliminate. They're the ones that come and they raid villages and they kill children and they they kill women and they have even a very brutal system of systematically raping the women. It's a, it's a horrible thing. And here it is, these kind of primitive people known as a Janjaweed, that they have this incredible capacity. And you think, how in the world, how in the world could these guys function? How do they have the ability to go and to attack and try to eliminate these tribes? Well, when you begin to break down the, the conflict in Darfur has been, as any conflict, has been rooted in years and years of dispute, dispute over land, tribal disputes. But what has incited this and made this even greater is the role of the Sudanese government. The Sudanese government has ignored the western part of their country, and they have actually made it to where that country, that part of the country, Darfur, that western part, where they're not developing economically, they're not developing socially. They've, they've kept it as a very primitive group of people. There, for years, there's been a big conflict, and I don't want to bore you with details here, but there's been a huge conflict between the north and the south of Sudan. Civil wars have come and gone, and this whole time, the western part has been eliminated. But in recent years, something has happened in Sudan. Something has, they've discovered there is lots of oil in Sudan, and here is the root of why genocide is happening there now. The reason, one of the reasons the Sudanese government wants to uh, support the Janjaweed, what they do is they supply weapons, they supply air cover, and they secretly, or they try to secretly support the Janjaweed as they attack these villages. It would be as if our government would, if they would supply weapons and air cover and money to gangs in our cities. And they would actually encourage the gangs of our major cities to wreak havoc on our cities and to wreak havoc on certain ethnic and social groups. And even though they, the government could say, we don't have anything to do it, we're not pulling the trigger, we're not starting the fires, we're not raping and killing, but yet they're providing air cover, they're providing 
guns. They're providing those things. Now, what is the motivation for that? The motivation is they want these people to either die or vacate their land so they can have free access to oil. And as they begin to develop the oil and begin to sell more oil, what happens with more money comes more sophisticated weapons. With more sophisticated weapons, people die quicker and die easier. And so you see that the cycle keeps going and the cycle keeps getting worse. The government, the government of, of Sudan, they play kind of a, this chess game where they'll be intense in their raids. They'll be intense in what they do and covering up what's going on. And then when public scrutiny and the public eye begins to show what's going on, they'll back up and they'll back off and they'll, they'll begin to uh, show a better face so the scrutiny of the public and the scrutiny of the world will turn their attention away. The other problem why the United Nations have been ineffective in making any change is because China has a permanent seat on the Security Council and Russia has a permanent seat on the Security Council. And as you know, as China, as their middle class is developing, they are needing oil to provide all these new cars and all the new energy they need, energy to provide. And where do they get a lot of their oil? From Sudan. And so when any talk of a peacekeeping force that's effective uh, any talk of, of, of why the Sudanese government is blocking humanitarian aid to get to the people of Darfur. When any resolution comes up, China especially and also Russia, they are not in favor of that. They support the Sudanese government. If you remember from 1991 to 1996, the Sudanese government, they, they harbored somebody, a guy named Osama bin Laden. If you remember during the Clinton administration, during the time of, of um, during one of the scandals he was going through, there we bombed Khartoum, we bombed the, bombed the capital city. It ended up being a children's pharmaceutical uh, lab. We did that because we were retaliating, trying to target, retaliating against the government because they were harboring Osama bin Laden. In Sudan, they, he told me they called those Monica bombs because, if you remember, he uh, bombed, uh, Sudan during his uh, personal crisis. So the same government that housed or harbored Osama bin Laden, as soon as 9-11 happened, they changed their tune. And they had begun collaboration with the CIA and with the United States to try to find terrorists. And because of that, because they, they have been, I guess, helpful or cooperative is a better way to put that. A lot of the scrutiny from the United States has changed, and the United States had backed off starting in 2001. Even though this country had once harbored Osama bin Laden, if you remember, President Bush said, hey, you're either for us or against us. And evidently, the Sudanese government said, well, we're going to be with you then. And they changed their tune. But it's when 2003 is when this conflict started in Darfur. And as Dick Brogdon told me, it's been a gentle genocide. I know those words sound horrible to put together, but it's happened slowly and it's happened under the radar and it's happened very secretly. So here we are today. Here we are today. And I want to pose the question to us here in Hendersonville, Tennessee, in 2008, in this gathering of a mid-sized church. Why does Darfur matter to us? Why does it matter to you and I today? Why are we taking a service to talk about this subject? I know in some ways it sounds like I'm giving some kind of political speech, but it's more than that. 
It's more than that because I want to suggest to you and I want to implore you and I want to invite you and I want to ask you to participate in this in just simply your attention and simply in your prayers and simply in your awareness. You know, half the battle is awareness. One of the reasons why someone like me that didn't even discover what had happened in Rwanda until the early 2000s is because of lack of exposure. Interestingly enough, the movie Hotel Rwanda is a powerful movie. And that movie, the cinema, brought a a level of awareness to me that I didn't have through the mass media. And so I just think that we as the church, we as the church, we shouldn't just be the victim of what the media wants us to believe and what they want our attention to be on. We need to ask penetrating questions and we need to investigate and we need to engage and we need to care for things because the heart of God cares for that region and the heart of God cares for Darfur. So why does Darfur matter? I'm going to pose that question to you. Here's the first answer is that we are responsible for our generation's history. We hold responsibility for our generation's history. I wish we could do this. I wish we could turn back the clock in history. I wish we could turn back the clock and make a difference in the broken treaties that were to the Native Americans. I wish we could turn back the clock and undo decade upon decade of slavery. I wish we could turn back the clock and close down the Nazis' gas chambers during the Holocaust. I wish we could do that. We could go back to those, you know, history gives us perspective. And we look back at generations before us and we say, how could that have happened? And why did that happen? And who allowed that to happen? And wouldn't it be great if we could turn back the clock and change that? Well, we can't change what's happened in the past, but we can do something about our generation. We can do something about what's happening in 2008. We can do something about what's happening on our planet now. We can do something about the injustices of this decade. We can't change the 40s. We can't change the 19th century. But we can make a difference in what's going on in this year and in this generation. We have to own our history. We're the writers of our history. And can I tell you this, that when our children and our great-grandchildren look back upon the church in this decade, they're not going to care about what style of songs we sing. And they're not going to care about what programs we produce. And they're not going to care about our graphs and our ministries and our advertising and our logos. But they are going to care of how did the church engage with the social issues of our day. You know, I don't know and care about what the church of the 1860s did about about their music and about their programming. But I am interested in did they stand up for against the institution of slavery? Did they stand up against the things that were uh, about people being oppressed? That does matter 150 years later. And can I tell you that I believe that 150 years from now, how we respond to genocide in our generation, it will be how we are judged. And it does matter. This is our time. This is our responsibility. We have to engage. And, you know, I understand this. It's when we don't know how to fill up our next tank of gas. And we don't know, you know, how to provide new clothes for our children. And and we need to lift personally. It's hard to engage in something that's happened on the other side of the world. But, But I believe this, that if you don't turn a deaf ear and you don't turn your head away and you allow the Spirit of God to let you feel the pain of someone else, you're going to see a blessing come upon your life and you're going to see a, a, a favor come upon your life. And when you bless the poor, you will prosper. When you get God's heart, 
something great will come into your life. This is our generation. This is our time. And listen, I am just tired of us deferring responsibility. We defer responsibility to politicians. We refer responsibility to the United Nations. We we, uh, defer responsibility to the Red Cross. It's their problem. It's their issue. It's their, they, they need to take care of it. All we need to do is provide more stuff for our kids. All we need to do is entertain our teenagers. All we need to do is, is build another building and make sure that we're more comfortable in our country club. We cannot defer responsibility anymore. This is our issue. This is our problem. We have to engage. Why is it important that we engage? Is that God devi- defines spirituality by what we do for the oppressed. That's why Darfur matters. God defines spirituality by what we do for the oppressed. You know, we define spirituality a lot of different ways. A lot of times we define spirituality by like what happens here or what happens here or what happens there. And all those things are good and appropriate. I want more people at the altars. I want more anointing in our services. I want more of God's glory to descend here. I'm not minimizing that. I'm not avoiding that. But I'm saying that if that doesn't translate to God's heart, then we've missed it. If it doesn't translate to his heart for the poor, his heart for the oppressed, if we can sit and we can sing a praise and worship song and we can do a quiet time, but we have a disregard for people who are being eliminated and exterminated and murdered and we just don't care. They're getting what they deserve. If we have that type of attitude, then what good does our worship do? What good does uh, our, our Bible studies do if we don't get God's heart? If we don't get His, what He hurts for and what His attention is set for? Listen, I want our church to be successful. I want our church to be special. I want our church to be unique and memorable and God-pleasing. But that doesn't have anything to do with our song choice. It doesn't have anything to do with our decorations. It doesn't have anything to do with our dress code. It doesn't have anything to do with our preaching style. All the things that we're obsessed with, all the things that we're worried about, all the things we complain about, and all the things we discuss and analyze and give our opinions on does not matter to the heart of God. They matter to us. Whether or not we get God's attention and we touch the community doesn't have anything to do whether we emphasize home groups or Sunday school, whether our youth ministry is more spectacular than the church down the street. Those things that occupy our attention, our time and conversation, they can do all of those, and we we can be good at everything I just listed and still miss the heart of God. Still miss the heart of God. I say let's do both. I want to excel in everything I, I, I listed but not if I don't have God's heart for the oppressed. There is an ingredient that comes straight from the throne of God. When God sets his approval on a group of people who have gathered and have his heart for the world. You understand that? You know, when when we talk about, oh yeah, well that church is really into missions. God is really into missions. It's not a church personality. It's the heart of God. It's his heartbeat. That's why Jonathan read, he said, listen, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Go do it. Teach them to observe everything. And when you do that, I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I believe God is looking for a group of people who will take up the challenge and engage in the pain of the world and care about people who cannot boost our attendance and will never contribute 
to increase our budget. When we get a heart for those type of people, we will tap into something. We will tap into an anointing that we've never imagined. When, when people are not a bottom line, people aren't a dollar sign. People aren't just a butt in a seat. They're a soul that matters to God. And they may never come into this room and they may never give anything to our bank account, but they have the heart of God because they are oppressed and they're poor and they need Him. And God is a God of justice and He's crying out for justice. And I heard someone talking about this. What is God's plan for justice? I love this. It's just us. We're the plan. If he wants to manifest his character of justice in the world, it's going to happen through you and I and our activity. The heart of God aches for the poor, the oppressed, and the downtrodden, and those are being abused by the power of man. That's what God's heart aches for. And I believe with all my heart that the reason he strategically placed us at one of the best corners of Middle Tennessee and he's given us this beautiful building and he's provided for us is because he wants us not just to be another church on the corner, but he wants us to be a group of people that has his heart, that is looking for his vision, that cares for things that other people are overlooking because this is our day, this is our hour, and this is our time. I believe the Lord has given us a scripture out of Isaiah 58. And I believe this scripture is more than just a text for this sermon. I believe this is a, a word for our church. And, 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 uh, a word, and, and we're going to start in the New Living Translation. And we're going to read a couple versions of this. It says, shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of God. They ask me to, uh, this, this is so haunting to me. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. Can, can I tell you that so many of our prayers are so self-absorbed and so self-centered? It's in mine too. Verse 3, we fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice. I will tell you why I respond. This is the Lord speaking. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves even while you fast. Can I just pause and say that I'm so glad people are fasting, but can I tell you that I'm disappointed what people are fasting for? I'm fasting for my breakthrough. I'm fasting for this. I'm fasting for that. I mean, fasting is so, I mean, I remember Jesus saying, let's fast for that oppressed, demon-possessed person because this kind of deliverance only comes through fasting. But it's not, but we're fasting for ourselves so many of the times. Even while you fast, you keep oppressed your workers. Verse 4, what good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourself by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourself with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly oppressed in prison. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. And this is the part. Now listen, this is the scripture that we read during worship today. Such a powerful scripture. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will be quickly healed will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then you will call to the Lord, 
the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Can I just pause there and we're going to read the rest? If you want to see healing and salvation and deliverance, and we want the glory of God to be our rear guard and protect us, that applies for those who care about the poor and care about the oppressed. Remove your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Verse 10, feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, give you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the desert ruins of your cities. And then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Is that not a, a, just a word from the Lord? Because that's what I want us to be. A builder of walls, a restorer of home, a, a perpetual ever flowing spring. I want life to come out of us. I want us to be people who have the life of God. I want us to be people who are always growing that even in a, in a season of drought, we're flourishing. And the God is very specific about how that will happen. Look at me with me in the New King James Version, starting in verse 8. These words are so beautiful. This is what we want. This is what we want to see in our church. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. How many are ready for some quick healings? Not just process healings, but some quick healings. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continuously and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a water garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Verse 12, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to dwell in. That's what I want for us. We've got to have God's heart and what he wants. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says it this way. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And it says in the Message Bible, speak up for the people who have no voice, for the rights of all the down and outers. Speak out for justice. Stand up for the poor and the destitute. That's what God's called us to do. And why does Darfur matter? Because here's the last observation. Together, we can make a difference. You know, when you have this overwhelming need in your life, or, or, or you're exposed to this overwhelming need happening, it's easy to say, well, I can't make a difference. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do. And so we tend to run away from what we don't understand. But the truth is this. You can make a difference. And more than just you, together, we can really make a difference. How, this can apply to our lives in so many different ways. How does this apply for me? Let me tell you how this applies for me. This particular Sunday is a golden Sunday. I mean, it's a no-excuse Sunday. There's no fall break, no summer vacation, no holiday. And there's a part of me that I want to share a message with you that, that will make you feel good. And we need those type of messages. I'm not belittling, encouraging messages. And I know this is that you're going to like me 
If I just teach about how you can get more comfortable and more rich and more powerful and how if you're going to like me better if I always talk to you about, hey, your life is going to be better if you do step one, two, and three. All right? But listen, I have a responsibility. I know we're not a big church. I know this, this message is not being broadcasted around the world on TV stations and all that. But, but there's a couple hundred people in here. And, and God's given me a platform. And God's given me a group of people to influence. And so today, why did I pick this Sunday? And why am I speaking about this? Because I'm trying to live out Proverbs 31 to speak up for those who have no voice. To try to expose you and invite you to engage your attention and engage your heart. Another way, you're already participating in Darfur. You may not even realize it. That each month we send $300 to... A portion of this sermon is being edited to protect our missionaries overseas. There's 9 million people there, and they know of less than 200 Christians. That would be, that would be a, a part of the country that's bigger than the whole state of Tennessee by 3 million people, and there's only 200 Christians. And one of the reasons that I love to do life with you and I love to pastor you, and I love to have experiences with you is because I also love to send that money to them every month and know that our church is making a difference in Sudan. And they help with water solution projects. One of the reasons that many of the women are being killed and raped is because they're not exposed to clean water, and as they leave their village, the Janjaweed will attack them. And so what they do is they will, they have biofilters that can provide fresh water for a family. Those cost about $1,200 a piece. And when a village allows and, and uh, there, there's no access to even good water, they'll drill for a well. And for $12,000, a freshwater well can provide water for a whole village. The reason they do this is because they want to start house churches. God always takes something bad and makes something good. You know, the only good thing that's come out of Darfur is that many, many have turned to Christ in that region. And many, many have turned to Christ because God will use persecution to cause to make his cause go forward. I emailed it this week, and, and um, I'm excited to tell you this. Uh, the Assemblies of God, every two years, they have their worldwide convention. And Dick is going to be one of the keynote speakers next summer. And so they're going to fly him over to speak in Orlando, Florida. They only have three services every two years, and Dick is one of the ones that will be speaking, and he's going to come to our church on June 27th because he knows we believe in him, and we believe in what's, in what's happening, and he's going to be able to share with us and hopefully also be part of the I Want to Lead uh, conference that we're doing. So we have a relationship with them that we're excited about. So we're all, you're already doing something. For those of you who are, who are part of this body, I want you to know that we are engaged and we are participating and we care about what's happening. And we are already making a difference. I'm also going to give you an opportunity, not today, but in the coming months, something that God's been calling me to do. And I've, 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 for over a year now, I've been saying, Lord, how can I raise $12,000 for Darfur? How can I raise $12,000? I've thought about different techniques. I feel like the Lord gave me an idea last week. An idea is this. There's, there's usually 200 people, adults, in this room. If a hundred adults in this room could give ten dollars a month for the next twelve months, starting in November, we'll raise twelve thousand dollars by next November. It, that wouldn't be hard to do. I'm just asking that, and maybe some of our teenagers can do that too. If a hundred of you would say, "I'll give ten dollars a month," and if that happens, that's a church will provide either a freshwater well for a village in Darfur. 
or we'll provide 100 biofilters that will save the lives of people. And that tool will connect them to Jesus Christ. And I believe that what Satan meant for evil, God is going to turn around for good. I believe that there can be renewal of the ways of God and our four. I do. I believe that with all my heart, that God can do that. And you and I can be engaged in that. If I was a good fundraiser, I'd have the forms ready for you to fill out. And I could have done that. But for some reason, I just felt like, you know what? I don't even want to do that today. There's a, we're not going to take another offering today, so be at ease. Be at ease right now. But if you notice that on your offering envelopes, there is a line for Darfur. And over the next 12 months, if, if you could just put $10 once a month in there. If the Lord leads you to do more, that's fine. But if you can do that, and, and I don't know if this is possible, perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll have a way for you to register on the web so we can know if we're on track and things like that. But here's the reason why, and here's what I want to share your heart. Because I just want to let you know that you're part of a church who cares. And you know what? Ten years from now, and 20 years from now, and 50 years from now, when our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren ask us about Darfur in the first decade of this millennium, we can say, I knew about it, and I gave to it, and my church gave to it, and we supported a missionary, and we prayed for them, and we were engaged. And this is not to put overwhelming guilt on you. It's to say, we have God's heart on this issue. You hear me? We have God's heart on this issue, and we will care, and we do care, and a difference can be made. I think many times as evangelical Christians, we have this resistance because we see that a lot of the people in Hollywood, George Clooney and Matt Damon, and these are will speak up for the far Darfur, excuse me, will speak speak up for it, and so we think, well, that's a that's a Hollywood issue, or if you're conservative, that's a liberal issue. No, it's not. It's a God issue. It's a God issue. And we, we can, just because though maybe some that we don't feel comfortable with are speaking out and, and for this injustice doesn't mean we have to avoid it. We can do that. After the message Sunday on why Darfur matters, Paul Jackson took the microphone and he challenged the church to raise $12,000 for the Water Solution Project in Darfur that day. After the service concluded, many people came to where Paul was standing and joined his offering to raise $8,800 on the spot. In addition to that miraculous offering, another person offered to make up the difference to bring our grand total to $12,000. We will now be sending $12,000 to our missionaries this week so that they can bring fresh water to a village in Darfur. This will save lives and lead people to Jesus. Your dream.